to Say That, the podcast where your big questions get real answers. My name is Matt King. I'm your host here in the city of Chicago. Joining us here is Glenn Fitzgerald, the founder of Mission USA. Uh-huh. Also with us, the director of Mission USA Productions, Jed Brewer. Uh-huh. Joining us all the way from Rutgers, Tennessee, one of the pastors of Christ Community Church, Lee Younger. Ahoy. Uh-huh. Oh, well done. It's, it's a veritable smorgasbord of greetings there. We have... Uh, some awesome questions for you. We're going to have a lot of fun on the show. But first, I think I have a first in the history of this show, and that is a New York Times emergency. Whoa. Oh, my. oh fancy. That's, that's very that's sophisticated. Hoity-toity, Matt. Do I need like a tiny, tiny espresso for this emergency? I mean, I, I would assume so. Let okay. me get my monocle. There it is. Yeah, all of a sudden, Matt's wearing a three-piece, three-piece suit, and he's strutting vigorously down Main Street. That's how I record all these shows, both in a three-piece suit and strutting vigorously. My downstairs neighbors really, really hate Sunday nights. (laughs) So uh, we, you may be shocked to know if you're a new listener to the program that occasionally in the history of this program, we have, we have thrown uh, some, some good natured barbs at the, uh, Mm. the mega church idea, the, uh, the celebrity pastor kind of industry. So none other than. Uh, the gray lady herself has gotten in on that that racket, and we record this on uh, Sunday, December the sixth, and recently has come out in the New York Times a an article by uh, Ruth Graham over there, a very good writer, about a pastor at Hillsong Church. Well, former pastor, mm. so super rich pastor guys, bunch of celebrity friends. Uh, they bust him cheating on his wife. He steps down, whole bang, bang. You've heard that story a hundred times. That's not particularly interesting to us because, you know, it's just sad when someone cheats on their spouse. We're not really looking to revel in that. However, in this story, there are some details about the Hillsong Church in New York City and how it works and how it goes down. And I feel that we need to dig in and share those with you and maybe get some commentary from our own gentleman on the show. So Are I these like great details of how great it is? Uh, in a sense. Yeah, in a sense, you know. Bleeding Tower of Pisa is not great because it's a good building, but it is notable. Okay. Let me, let me ask this, Matt. Please. As you, as you roll out these details, is it going to become increasingly obvious why the sad story you started the emergency with is almost an inevitable. It happens so often. It's just a ticking time bomb with all of these organizations kind of thing. Well, Lee, I I would say no, only in the the point of, I think that starts out at 100% obvious. So I'm not sure it can become increasingly obvious, but if we can hit 105% obviousness, I'm certain that we will. I, I will start you out with a quote from a gentleman who's an executive pastor in the Hillsong Network, uh, with all this, as all this goes down, exactly what Lee's saying there. I want to make it very clear that celebrity culture is not a core value of Hillsong. Oh, it, it's That's not. a sentence a man said out loud. That's good to know. So, uh, so we shouldn't have a problem, really. And I'm sure the rest of the things we read out of the story won't draw that statement in hilarious irony as we go on. <laughs> so the, the, the pastor in question is named Carl Lentz, and this is a description. Mr. Lentz was known for his look, tattoos, edgy glasses, and not just style, but italics, fashion. 
Women's mm. Wear Daily described Mr. Lentz's uniform as a Saint Laurent leather jacket, ripped jeans, and a low-cut T-shirt. He often sported a Rolex, too. So that's, you know, mega church pastor uniform. If your pastor is getting written up in Women's Wear Daily, and it's not for the, the wonderful work he is doing, giving clothes away to a women's shelter or something, we may have a problem starting right there. Mm, yeah. But then we go from the expected to the, uh, the Scooby-Doo noise, just kind of what? Next sentence, Rolex 2, pastors and other staff members who arrived at Hillsong wearing traditional suits and ties often gradually started to dress like Lentz and even imitate his southern inflected accent. Uh, Uh, We're we're basically all southerners on this podcast. First of all, don't copy that accent. Yeah, I've had people do my accent at me. It is not a sign of warmth and uh, camaraderie. Yeah, uh, <laughs> you, you know, just talking like this, and, uh, you know, Jesus you know, came around the corner, and he saw these fellows, and he started hollering at them, and that's not, you know, it, it's a choice that, that those who of us from the South sometimes take, but if you aren't from the South, A, you shouldn't be doing it, and B, no one's going to think you're nailing it. No, don't. Be it be it Southerners, be it Australians, be it Scottish people. These are all people I've seen Americans do this to. Don't don't imitate people's accents to their face. Right. And also, <laughs> don't start dressing and sounding like your boss because that's weird. Yeah. <laughs> we move on to to the next uh, section I pulled out of this, which is at Hillsong, living well and looking good are sometimes framed as forms of evangelism. Janice Legata, who was an early attendee of the New York branch, recalled leaders referring to a well-known verse from 1 Samuel that reads in part, Man looks at the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. I'll pause for a moment to let you guess where this is going. Does it go to a place where they like recognize we are way too image conscious and that's a bad thing? Nope. Let's find out. The verse is traditionally interpreted as an exhortation to look past appearances. At uh-huh. Hillsong, Miss Legata said, the verse was interpreted as God's presence is not in doubt, but to attract superficial man, it is important to have the best outward appearance possible. Stop. Oh, man. Okay. Boy, that was some, that was some Gumby stretching on that scripture. Yep. Voice. Yeah. You know that story from the Old Testament about King David that you were taught as a six-year-old? And the whole point, the veggie tale style point was God looks at what's on it, the inside, not on the outside. Turns out if you pay enough for a seminary education, you can learn that it means actually the opposite, <laughs> which is super fun. Here's where things get weird. They're Wait, not weird already? Now? Not comparatively. <laughs> oh. It's kind of like how if you looked at, you know, 2020 in June, you're like, oh, things are bad. But now, in, but in like November, you're like, June wasn't bad. Because you live through November. <laughs> oh, I'm sad now. Now we cross a Rubicon. This is talking about Lentz, who was rarely at the church. Oh. When he did appear on Sundays, he rarely mixed with churchgoers. <laughs> on Sundays, a team of congregants worked as volunteers, preventing anyone without the right badge from wandering backstage. And only a few had clearance to enter the green room stocked with a lavish catering spread and change of clothes to fit Mr. Lentz's increasingly particular tastes. I will pause there to point out that the phrase increasingly particular tastes 
makes me feel like I'm reading a novel about some kind of werewolf. (laughs) You don't want that. Like, or like a true crime podcast, increasingly particular taste. Not good. (laughs) The church seemed to go out of its way to cultivate a hierarchy of coolness. Uh... A reserved seating section for VIPs appeared at the front of the church and and then expanded to take up multiple rows. A former volunteer said that when high-profile entertainers or sports stars would try to slip into the main seating area, content to worship with ordinary churchgoers, ushers (laughs) were often instructed to guide them to the special section in front or to whisk them backstage to meet Mr. Lentz. Uh, There's an actual Bible verse on that one. Is it, yeah. is it pro? No, it's not. <laughs> does, oh. does that Bible verse mean the opposite of what I think it does? Or, no. It, it, oh, means exactly, it, it means do not show favoritism to the people that come to your church, period. To the rich the brother. To the rich so, brother. Don't do okay, that. Okay, so, so I should definitely show favoritism to the rich brother then. Yeah, no. That's definitely, no. <laughs> also, I love the, the phrase ordinary churchgoer as opposed yeah. to extraordinary churchgoer. We call them the unwashed. I, I, I also, I also like the idea that some of these really high-profile people, it says it went out of its way to say they were actually content to worship right. with the normal folk, yeah, and they were ushered backstage. <laughs> you must meet Pastor Cool. As as Glenn pointed out, there is actually a part in the scriptures you may have heard of them says. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing, saying you sit in a good place, <laughs> you become a judge with evil thoughts. That's, oh no, that's that's the exact same thing as what this story is. I know I mean, we talk about this on the show a lot. I know there are parts of the Bible that are complicated. We're actually, I talk about some on the yeah. show that have like cultural context and. Yeah. There's translation issues with words. There's literally a part that says, don't give rich people the good seat, because that's <laughs> evil. So there's that. We move on, and we go deeper. This is the one... I can't believe there's more. ...that just... I I was... I think all of us reading this up to this point were like, this isn't anything I don't assume about megachurches, if we're being honest. This is the one where I had to put the iPad down and take a little walk around the room. This is talking about uh, church volunteers. All churches rely to some degree on volunteer labor to function, but several former Hillsong volunteers described a particularly intense culture of working 12 or more hours a day and then being treated as low-status workers by church leaders. Mm. An example. After staff enjoyed catered dinners on Saturday evening at the church offices, Volunteers would be summoned from home to come in and clean the kitchen. Jeez. This is a lady who was a volunteer. Recalled attending, along with Mr. Lentz, a birthday party for a pastor's wife in a private room at a Williamsburg restaurant. And seeing a friend who was a church volunteer sitting at the edge of the room. The volunteer had been enlisted to drive partiers home in the wee hours of the morning but had not been invited to enjoy the party himself. Wow. (laughs) That brings up another thing, and there's multiple instances and parables in the Bible about how God treats the invite list of parties. (laughs) 
And it's literally the opposite of this. That does not sound familiar. Yeah. The religion that started with outcasts, slaves, prostitutes, and tax collectors that was driven into catacombs under the city and in hidden buildings all over the world. But in America, you can get rich doing it. Also, the, uh, the religion which the uh, Messiah, author and perfecter of, when, someone, when he felt he needed to sum it up, said, it's like you're throwing a dinner party. And all the really uh, Tony cool rich people don't want to come. So you just get the people off the street, the poor and the, the shabby, and you invite that's them right. in. And that's what this is like. And the fact that you could say, we have this volunteer from the church because we don't want to pay for Ubers, I guess. Um, but we're not going to let him come in the party. Without your skull actually caving in from the irony <laughs> is utterly beyond me. That's it's, right. It's worth noting there's been a fair amount of, of well-executed reportage talking about the phenomenon of the hot pastor um, and with Lens serving as kind of the, the er example there. Uh, just as a thought, so this is Isaiah 53.1, which Christians read as talking about Jesus. So this is Jesus we're discussing here. He had no beauty or majesty to attract us to him, nothing in his appearance that we should desire him. Just, just noting that that's, as but Matt he, said, the author and perfecter of our faith. But he did have a big, fat, gold watch on, right? No, no, <laughs> no. You wouldn't Not, notice thought, his face, but his watch was but popping. I, th- I, thought, I, I thought Isaiah 53, 1, Jed said... I just want some ice on my wrist so I look better when I dance. <laughs> yeah. Well, translators disagree on certain, you know, nuances in the text. And here's what we're going to close out on. Because you, you would think that maybe when you're the executive pastor of this whole mess, where clearly you're getting written up in the paper of record in the United States for saying that, Trying to be famous and focusing too much on the leaders has totally screwed you and blown up your reputation that you might just be like, we're going to be humble and chill for like, give it a minute. Nope. This is what the executive pastor of the, I guess the Hillsong like network in America. Um, he said one Sunday evening, a few weeks after Mr. Lentz's departure, John Termini, an executive pastor spoke to the church about its future, acknowledging its recent difficulties. Recent difficulties being a little bit of an understatement there, I would say. <laughs> but here's how he said. He described Hillsong East Coast as pioneers and fighters who had brought Hillsong's presence in America from scratch. Our general right now, he has gone down, Mr. Termini told the camera. I need you to know today, we may not have a general, but we have a king, and his name is Jesus. There's a lot of weird crap about that. But here's one. Uh, If in any context, the general you're supposed to be following is wearing an Yves Saint Laurent jacket, you're probably not in a good spot. Yeah. If he's rarely in the building and cannot be approached, he's really not much of a general. He's an absentee general. And, you know, we're all doing the best we can. Yeah. You know, it was like Eisenhower, he would talk to his senior staff, but only if they had the cool badge. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. 
This is this is this is a true story. I went. I, I was visiting uh, uh, San Antonio one time, and uh, my wife and I went to a, a, a big old honking church there. They had a a famous pastor who'd written a lot of books, and in it was one of those just shake your head moments because in the bulletin that they handed to everyone, it said, please do not approach pastor after the service. And he was ushered out with a group of body men. And I will wow. point out, because I know that story, we, we were talking about hot young pastor. This was not that. No. This was someone <laughs> who your grandma has books by. Wow. We're talking about that level, but you know. That's right. Got to get rushed out like James Brown in 74. <laughs> and on that, and we do, I do actually encourage you to go read through the article for yourself because it's, it's bonkers and it's an extreme example, but there's a lot of things in there worth being on the lookout for as right. you consume Christian culture and Christian stuff in the world. But on that, we will declare emergency off. Now we, um, Glenn has been hitting us up and kind of really, really wanting to get a nice $600 pair of ripped jeans for the bridge live. (laughs) We keep trying to explain. It's kind of, it's just a shoulders up shot, man. But he keeps saying they'll know they'll be able to tell. (laughs) I don't know if that's true, but it's an aura thing. We're not there yet, but it's still a pretty good program. You can check out every Tuesday at 7:30 PM central over facebook.com slash the bridge Chicago. We're having a lot of fun. We hope you will join us there. Lee. Yeah, just one thing on as we close out this emergency, just a heads up that our, our man Glenn uh, brings an excellent word about the difference between Christian culture and intimacy with Jesus upcoming on the Water Tower podcast. Uh, maybe it might, I think it might drop like the day after this episode drops, but definitely something worth checking out and definitely a, a deep and serious dive into that issue. I always, I always enjoy a plug within a plug. And now we're going to go for the final one. We're going to go plug sandwich, and we're going to talk about Bridgebox. <laughs> MissionUSA.com slash Bridgebox, only $8 a month. Get a lot of cool stuff in your inbox the first of every month. We are in the month of December. We're talking about peace on earth, how an individual can be part of it. Get sermons, songs, Bible studies, all sorts of good stuff at MissionUSA.com slash Bridgebox. All right, we're going to jump to our first question here. Panel this all the way to the end. I'll give you some ways to get in touch with this, or you can scroll down into your episode description and click the links there. Our first question comes in anonymously and says, what are we supposed to do with numbers five in this day and age? I'm reading through the Bible and this verse 12 definitely leaves more, leaves me more confused about God's treatment of men and women, especially for sexual sin. This is even more difficult to swallow as a woman while balancing the knowledge that our God is good. Thanks for your thoughts on this. And it is a really, really great question. And I'll let these guys dig into the specifics, but I'll, I'll set it up to say that basically what our, our friend here is talking about is there's a part in Numbers 5 where God is laying out to Moses how the people should live. And there's a very kind of, it reads very odd to us, elaborate ceremony for basically if a husband suspects a wife of being unfaithful, they go to the priest, they make these certain types of offerings that the priest mixes into something that the woman drinks. And if if she was uh, faithful, then it's fine. And if she did cheat on her husband, then it has these physical consequences. And it's, it's a whole thing. It's, it's very involved and it's very kind of elite. I think it was, as would make sense being that it was written of a culture, you know, a long way, a long uh, time ago and a very long distance away. It does seem very, very foreign to us. So 
both kind of in the macro and the micro, we hit something in the Bible like this that is seems real strange and really seems to be saying one thing. And also with this one specifically, how how do we approach that? That's a really, really good question. I, I will say in a really broad sense, it's important to remember that, and this is something we say on the show a lot, that nothing that you uh, read in one part of the Bible is going to undo the the simple message of the gospel or the the heart of of God or the heartbeat of Jesus. And when we look at Jesus in the gospels, we see someone who who I mean spoke to women and put forward women and brought women into his inner circle in a way that no leader, no one ever did. I mean, he was so unbelievably progressive, uh, you know, just as far as the way that he honored and treated uh, women in his life and in his ministry. And so that's an important thing to remember is when I'm confused about something in the scriptures, that doesn't undo who Jesus is or who God is. And so maybe I need to dig into that. Maybe I need to go find an expert or, or, you know, read uh, some of these books like Jed has pointed us all towards, um, you know, a book on the prophets before that that can help us, you know, untangle some of the really difficult things in the Old Testament or something. But I need to remember that whatever I find there, it's not going to undo who Jesus is and how he cares about us and and the the pure message of the gospel. But one of the things in particular about this this story or this chapter or this piece of Mosaic law, like the law of Moses, is that and this is an important thing, but a lot of biblical scholars tell us that there were finer points and really complex things in Mosaic law and ceremonies that there's actually no record that anybody ever did. Like there's really complicated uh, pieces of the Mosaic law that like, it's like once it was codified as this is something that you can do if you get into this situation that people kind of looked at that and said, well, that seems complicated. I think I'm just going to sidestep that and not partake in that whatsoever. This is a really interesting one. And what a lot of scholars tell us is that this might be one of those cases that we don't have a lot of evidence that something like this happened. Some of it looks like kind of, kind of looks like magic. Like there's a potion and if, if infidelity has happened, it's going to react this way. And if it hasn't, it's going to react this other way. It's really strange story, but let's try to understand it with drawing a broader context. A lot of the law of Moses that God gave to the people of Israel were were things that God was doing to help people basically pump the brakes on a society that had gone completely crazy. I mean, they they were they were completely out of bounds, completely reactionary, violent, all this kind of stuff. And some of the law of Moses was God's way of saying, everybody needs to pump the brakes. Everybody needs to settle down. Everybody needs to see this in a different way and slow down and draw out this process and let tempers cool and everything. This seems like a prime example of that for me. For one thing, back in the day, back in the time that this happened, basically the rules of society were if a guy distrusted his wife, if he was a little jealous or had a little bit of suspicion, he could simply send her away. Their marriage would be over. She would be out on her own, and she had no recourse. There was no appellate court. There was nothing she could do about it. They they might even execute her. Like this was a this was a society that, at the whim of a husband, a woman's life could be completely ruined. This odd this rule that seems so bizarre and so strange for us, in an odd way, this was a way to slow down the hot temper. This was a way to make something that used to happen at a whim 
become something that was a long drawn out process and a complicated ceremony and something that like, you know, you're going to have to go, we're going to go to the priest together. I'm going to say my charge. He's going to make up this weird drink and then you're going to drink it. And then we're going to have to go back home together. And then we're going to have a meeting. And I'm going to be really sorry that I, that I said this in public. Um, and I'm probably going to be sleeping on the couch for a couple of months or whatever it is. This was a way to promote, um, instead of, I don't get to just, you know, a husband doesn't just get to send his wife away. He doesn't just get to at a whim if he's tired or angry or just jealous or whatever. He doesn't get to ruin her life. There's this whole long drawn out thing that it's like, Hey, instead of doing that, instead of making this a public thing, can we just have a conversation about how I am feeling a little insecure. And it could be the promotion of the kinds of conversations that a married couple should have. A, understanding that a lot of Mosaic law was, was a way to, to get a society that had gone crazy to slow down and promote different kinds of conversations, different kinds of connections, and different kinds of relationships. This really, really, really weird and odd thing becomes something much more understandable. Again, it's weird. I like I don't think it's a good idea or anything like that. Like I'm not, you know, we're going to go to the priest and you're going to have to drink this thing or whatever. But it's possible that because it was so weird and because it was so whatever public and embarrassing or whatever that it makes a couple just decide, let's just work this out together like a couple should do in the first place. Um, again, when we draw the kind of context of what that society was like and how God was trying to bring uh, cooler heads and more conversation and more connection and different kinds of relationship into a society that had gone completely mad, it's a little bit easier to understand some of these things. It's a really, really great place to start that off and such a strong foundation to build from. And Glenn, let's, let's take it from this kind of bigger view that Lee has done a great job giving us here. And let's look at this this specific passage, this specific idea, because I think um, particularly if we look through it through through modern eyes, we can certainly see a very unequal system here if we don't have some of that context that yeah. Lee is giving us. So, what more do we need to look at when we look specifically at Numbers five? Well, here's the thing about uh, the historical context of this: is that it's important for you to understand. Um, when you're looking at anything that has happened historically, to understand um, as if, if you're reading it as a woman, it, it pretty much it go, gets worse the further back you go. I mean, th- this <laughs> is uh, it. It sounds weird because I think a lot of our modern culture is sort of based on things are worse now than they ever have been before. Uh, and they're they're not. They're way better now than they have ever been. Really, really, uh, just looking at the broad context of that, and and, uh, and Lee gave us a sense of that. Uh, and and really to understand the moments where this is acting sort of outside of a patriarchal kind of situation, you have to know the biblical context in order to sort of tease that interpretation out. But the funny thing about the biblical context of this, and it's true for a lot of the Old Testament, actually, is that you have to kind of, you know, usually on the in the New Testament, we say, just read the rest of the chapter, and usually it's all there. But so much of the Old Testament is one big sweeping narrative, and you have to understand the whole narrative in order to put this in context. 
So I'm gonna I'm gonna give you the entire uh, context of the entire Old Testament in about three minutes. I'm gonna leave a few details out, but it, this will be <laughs> well, the whole thing. perfect. So you got a garden, and there's two people, and they're naked, and they're happy, and they're they're naming things, and they're eating fruit. Everybody's happy. They're walking and talking with God every day. This is the way God created it. This is the way he wanted it. He's in charge. They listen to him. He gives them one rule exactly to follow. They say, I don't want to follow no rule. And then they ate the fruit. The fruit was a knowledge of good and evil because they had a desire to be like God. And you know, so you could sort of, if we want to really compact that down, it's this idea of I want to decide for myself what this is. I want to decide what is right and wrong and good and bad. I want to decide for myself what righteousness means and what it means to be a Christian or a Jew or whatever it is. I, I get, I'm going to decide that. All the rest of the Old Testament is people deciding that over and over and over again. <laughs> They're saying, I don't want to be, I don't want to have a, 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 a God be our king. I want a human being king so I can say, this guy's a jerk. He didn't know anything. And I, you know, <laughs> and I, you know, I do my, I, if I was in charge, I'd be, I'd do it good. And, you know, and I don't want to follow a pillar of cloud. And I want to, so, so much of the Old Testament is like, okay, you want a king? Here's a king. And get a load of what kind of awfulness this guy's about to bring into your life. Oh, you want to just make things up as you go along? Okay, here's some commandments that you got to follow. I'll write it down for you because you don't want to come to me and hear it from me. You have to, the, the only way that you will onboard this is if it's written down and then you could take it and then you can sort of twist it around and beat each other over the head with it and get legalistic with it and play games with it. Because you you don't want to deal with me. You want to deal with the written word. That's what you want to do. So here it is. Here's this. Now, I'm not trying to say that the the law was a curse. I I think that would be way too strong. Uh, I wouldn't even say that it's a punishment exactly, but we might be getting warmer. Uh, But so much of what's going on in the Old Testament is, is God saying, I want to be the one that you walk and talk with. I want to be your king. I want to be the one that you go to. I don't want this system. But if you want the system, here's a system. How do you like this system? Did the system make you holier? Did it make you be more devoted to me? Did it create more intimacy between us? Or did it become a thing that you worked and you you uh, you know, looked for loopholes and you did your little deals and whatever else? So that when we get to Jesus, Jesus says, that covenant has been fulfilled. I, we are no longer doing that. What we're doing is this, walking and talking and interacting. This is what I want. So the, in, the, in the case of Numbers 5, it's talking about uh, coming to the priest in order for a, a, an issue of jealousy to be settled by God in a supernatural way with the drinking of this stuff. If you want to put that in a biblical context and apply it to everyday life, Jesus is saying the same thing. If you are jealous of somebody, if you feel uh, someone's doing you wrong or whatever, rather than make that an emotional-based accusation, Instead, you're meant to take that to God and let him supernaturally give you some wisdom and insight on what you should be thinking about that. 
that's how we figure out how to you know get the meaning out of numbers five but we have to kind of go around the world to get there it's a really great stuff and both lee and glenn have i think given us a very thorough understanding and a great place to to kind of go on the textual stuff here and jed let's let's take it out of that for a second because it certainly seems like um our friend who wrote in the question uh, the underlying this is I, I see a pattern of people using religious stuff to uh, minimize and try to control women, and I don't like that. And I think Lee and Glenn have given us a very important and useful uh, counterbalance to that. That's not really what's happening in the text, but that doesn't change the fact that there's still a lot of that in the world. So what do we do with that feeling as opposed to just the academic stuff? That's a great question, and I really love that you wrote into us with this topic, with this question. I, I think it's spot on, and I think that you are angry about the mistreatment of women, and I think you should be. Um, I, I think it is a good thing that Amen. you are angry about that. I also am angry about that, and I believe that uh, God is also angry about that. And yeah, I, th- I think I think we may want to note uh, that— there are passages in the Bible that if one were inclined to want to take them the wrong way, it would be easier to take certain passages the wrong way than others, right? You know, when, when it says God is love, eh, it's pretty hard to take that one the wrong way. But there's other stuff in the Bible that when you dig into it, it, it doesn't necessarily mean what it looks like on its face. But if you're looking for an excuse to be a jerk to other people, eh, maybe you could twist this pretty easily into that. And so it makes total sense to me that you... You read a passage that at the very least requires quite a bit of nuance and complexity to to get down to the bottom of what it's saying, and you're like, this feels a little weird, and it feels like the kind of thing, if nothing else, that a person who wants to subjugate women would be really into. It makes total sense. My question back to you is, what practical steps are you going to take in regards to the mistreatment of women, particularly where religion is involved? Because uh, yeah. it turns out uh, we desperately need you and me and everybody else to find a good fight and get in it. Um, right. We can, um, despite the fairly bizarre focus of the modern church on proclaiming the word, that is part of the answer, but it is nowhere close to the whole of the answer. Um, fighting for justice is also a big part of the answer, and you are meant to be a part of that. And I think that when you find something where it just sets off that righteous anger in your heart, that sense of this is this is unjust and I won't stand for it, that's a good thing, and we want to do something about that. We want to put that sense of, of anger into motion. So Two things just off the the top that you could definitely do. The first is wherever you live, there is doubtlessly a recovery center that is focused on women in recovery. Um, and you could get involved as a volunteer there. We do uh, our our women do uh, our women's ministry team does a lot um, with that here in Chicago. Uh, there are a lot of facilities like that. Uh, other places in the world. Um, it's wonderful stuff. It's definitely something to look into. Another thing that you could do is to petition your church for better inclusion of women in leadership. Um, someone definitely needs to be sounding the alarm on that. Uh, you could also petition your denomination for that if you're a part of that. But I think um, 
getting a hold of the leadership, again, either your church, your denomination, and saying, why do we not have more women on the microphone? Why do we not have more women in teaching positions? Why do we not have more women in positions of authority? Those are good pointed questions to be asking. I think you should be doing exactly, exactly that. As much as we want to understand the word, and we do, and it's a, it's a good thing, we want to take that sense of passion that you feel and put it into motion and fight for justice and fight for inclusion. And if you feel that sense of righteous anger in your heart, I want to encourage you to turn that around and use that as fuel to find a good fight and get in it. Mm. Absolutely right. That is all fantastic stuff. I will close this out with one just kind of tip we, we've mentioned many, many times in the show. It kind of goes back to where Lee started us off with the fact that no part of the Bible invalidates any other part of the Bible, but they all, they all work together. Um, there is a part in the Bible that is very clear. It's one of those clear parts that Jed is talking about where Paul mentions that in Christ there is no Greek or Jew, no slave or free, no man or woman. That is, that is not a distinction that is to be made amongst Christians. And so if someone is trying to use a verse and spin some to say, yeah, but different roles and women are this, and it's the weaker sex of the vessel, the, the, the verse that's very, very easy to understand is, in Christ there is neither man nor woman. That's one of those things you can come back to. It's very important when you're trying to set yourself in a place where you can't be manipulated and you can't be um, kind of let people get in your head and talk rings around you. To just have those simple things that, well, but it says this, it says this very clearly, you're giving me a thing about mixing an offering and you got to drink it. And that's, there's a lot going on there. This is really simple and clear. And to have those kind of foundational verses, those very big concepts that let you step to the other stuff. We're going to move on to our second question here. It comes in anonymously and says, my boyfriend and I are running out of reasonable dating options at this point in the pandemic. Getting cold outside with snow and all, just about everything for hanging out is closed. We go to restaurants from time to time, but that gets expensive and it's starting to get harder with restrictions. My boyfriend has roommates and I live with my family. We can't spend all winter in each other's rooms because the temptation would get out of control. We're running out of reasonable options. So do you have any advice on how to date in this season? And a very, very cool question. A very, we do like, we love the questions like the one we had before where you can get into the the academics and the thought of it, but this is, we also love the the practical stuff, the real make a plan and execute a strategy as Glenn would say. So Glenn, where would we start off with this? You really have two problems uh, going simultaneously. One is, uh, you know, a lot of stuff is closed down with, with pandemic stuff. So you, you have limited options of things you can go and do. And the other one is, is the, the horniness. And those are kind of uh, compounding each other. But let's start, I, I want to kind of get a, give a very big picture kind of on this and let these other guys kind of drill in down to some of the more uh, finer points and the details of it. I think the first big picture thing to look at is this is a big challenge and that you should always embrace a challenge because challenges make mis- relationships stronger. Now, that's, of course, only if you rise to the to the challenge. If If you don't rise to it, then it ends the relationship. So there's that. Uh, we tend to think, uh, you know, relationships get strong when, when everything's smooth sailing and it, it makes a certain kind of logical sense, but it just never really works that way. Um, so if, if you think of this as a challenge, there's always sort of a two 
uh, pronged uh, nature of how you rise to challenges in relationships. One prong of that is to have a mentor or a counselor, a pastor, or it could be a parent even, somebody who has a relationship that you really admire that's been doing it for a while. And I'm not talking about one of your little buddies. I'm talking about you know, people who have been married and doing the whole deal uh, and get some timeless wisdom from them on how to handle whatever challenge that you're facing. It may They may not have gone through the exact same thing, uh, but it might be similar enough where they can give you some ideas. The second prong of uh, how we rise to those kinds of challenges is being creative. Creativity is super important in relationships. Yeah. I, I, I really want you to get a, a hold of that. If, you, if I ask you how creative are you as a couple in, in creating new ways of doing things and communicating and interacting and all of that, if you say, uh, not so much, I'm, I'm saying maybe it's good that we have a little bit of a challenge that kind of, you know, pokes that and says, you need to, you need to get more creative. You need to think outside the box more. You need uh, to figure out ways of, um, doing something that's unique and cool and works for the two of you. And as I'm saying here before, incorporate some of this time, timeless wisdom from people who've had a lot of experience with, you know, challenges in relationships. Final thing on this, as, as I send it around, all relationships, as you heard us say on the podcast before, all relationships need a mission. And what a what better time than right now if there's less that you can do that might be, you know, pretty mindless and not that exciting anyway. Uh, find a mission for the two of you. If if you Amen. If either of you bake baking cookies and giving those to to people who are feeling lonely is awesome. If ne- if neither of you knows how to bake, great time to learn. You know, or even just, you know, cooking things or whatever. If either of you have any interest in any kind of arts or crafts, there's just a million different little things you can do. Make up a nice little card. Uh, send it out to friends that you know. Uh, be an encouragement to people. Uh, you know, find out what sort of needs are going on in your community and how can we play a part in doing that in a way that's safe and allows us to to do what we can here. Uh, but think all the way outside the box. Get creative. This is an exciting time for your relationship. Amen. If you if you rise to this challenge, you'll say this was like where it all got really great. That's an excellent place to start off. I love I love that as an attitude and a mindset to take into it. And Jed, if we're if we're looking for some ways to creatively spend time together and with these challenges. What are some examples that might set off someone's imagination? Man, that's a great question. So three things just want to encourage you to take a look at. Maybe they work for you, maybe they don't, but they go right along with Glenn's advice to both to be creative and to intentionally cultivate a dynamic of creativity. One more that I would add that goes right along with it is don't be afraid of trying things, having them not work super well, and we've got to tweak it and try a different variation on it. And then we're going to tweak that and tweak that. And we keep going. That's, that's how creativity yeah. works. So yeah. 
what we don't want is a, is a thought of, wait, I have an idea that might work and then it doesn't work perfectly. And it's like, well, I guess we failed. I guess nothing will work for us. Cause that's, right. that's not it at all. It's well, 10% of it worked, but that's a start. So we can, we can build on it. So one of the first things is, um, and I know this is going to seem really obvious given that we're in 2020, but I would look at having a FaceTime date. Um, and I think that that could be a good idea for a number of reasons. First is, uh, the temptation to do physical stuff with each other is basically zero because it's not an option. But I think it's also going to force you to communicate in a different way, uh, which is actually almost always a good thing uh, uh, in relationships. It's really it's funny if you're around someone all the time, it can be easy to get in a place where you're always around, but you're not really communicating. Um, and so to have something where kind of the whole thing is about communication because otherwise what are we doing here that that could actually be interesting it might help to almost come prepared with some topics or some questions or some things that you want to talk through they don't have to be heavy i mean it could be you know what's what's one of your all-time favorite movies but where we're actively talking and continuing to get to know each other right like one of the things that uh, again i think as couples get serious one of the things that, that can be a weird assumption is, well, we basically know each other at this point. And no, you don't. Getting to know someone is a lifelong thing. And um, having environments that kind of spur that on is really good stuff. It's really valuable. It, it will, If you guys get married tomorrow, it'll still be valuable 10 years from now, is to have yep. situations that really spur you on towards just talking and getting to know each other better and at a, a greater depth. Okay, here's the the next suggestion is uh, learn how to bundle up and go for a walk. Um, I I sincerely doubt that you live in a colder place than Chicago. And if you do, my <laughs> prayers go out to you. Uh, um, why? Yeah, if you do, why? Like, what sin are you being punished for? <laughs> yeah. Um, we know what we did. <laughs> <laughs> but so here's the thing is, dude um, – you can bundle up and you can go be outside for a couple hours as long as you're moving um, right. and, uh, and actually have it be fun, have it be a good time. You can hold hands and everything and you can talk and you can interact. Um, if you've got a bunch of money, you can buy better gear that will make that easier. But even if you don't, you can wear like 10 t-shirts and you'll have basically the same effect. So uh, bundle up, go for a walk. And one of the things about that that's really good is that, it gets you in a motion of not being trapped by your circumstances, of standing up to your circumstances, which is a really, really good dynamic to have for your relationship is we don't let hard times boss us around. We find a way to still have fun and still be together and do the things that we want to do. Then the last option that I would look at is you guys go have season by a cheap fire pit that you can put in one of your backyards and you can put some wood on it and light it up and, and have a good old time outdoors. Super Again, affordable. Exactly right. And if you guys have never bought anything together before, this would be a great first time to do that and learn what that's like. And we can research it together and figure out what's the good one, what's the one that we want and whatnot. Um, I think that would be a great thing for you. Again, we're getting to know each other better. We're, we're um, figuring out how to spend time together. None of those are meant to work perfectly the first time that you do them. The goal is to try them, figure out the 10% that did work for you guys, and then talk together. How do we build on that to get next time to 15% that we feel good about? Excellent. Excellent stuff. I love, love the practicality there. And Leah, let me maybe look at 
a combination of the, this very practical and this kind of higher level stuff Glenn has given us because I think what we're looking at, which is a very cool thing, and actually something we don't get to look at on the show a lot, is someone who had a really good plan, it sounds like. you know, We know we got to fight the temptation. We're doing this, that, and the other, and we're yeah. doing this. And then the plan got blown to crap by uh, circumstances beyond their control. And as these guys are both alluding to, how you deal with those kind of things and having a roadmap for how to deal with those kind of things can be very, very valuable going forward, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I love where both Jed and Glenn have taken this. And 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 one thing I do want to say to you is the fact that you wrote in this question to us is a big deal. The reason I say that is I've been working with, with young people and have had so many conversations about you know, relationships and dating with high school and college age folks that I cannot possibly tell you how many there have been. But um, there are very few people who are actually and actively thinking, I want to do this Jesus's way and I want to do this the right way, even outside of a pandemic. So you even asking this question is a big deal. Um, not a lot of folks want to know what he, what he wants for them or how do we do this in the most helpful way or how do we avoid temptations. That's a big deal. Um, one of the really cool things to me, though, on a philosophical level is that the pandemic has – it's kind of caused a lot of us to ask really basic questions about all of our assumptions. So what I want to do for a second is I want to look at your problem from using a different problem – but uh, and illustrate your kind of way out of it. And it goes right hand in hand with exactly what Glenn was talking about, the creativity piece, and then what Jeb was talking about with the practical piece. And I'm very confident that the Lord is going to help you guys on this because, as I said, not a lot of people want to do it his way. So when somebody does, I think he gets pretty fired up personally. But one thing that's happened for like for guys like us, the, the, the hosts that you're listening to on this show, one thing the pandemic caused us to do was – it made us realize, okay, our our like in-person large gatherings where we have a worship service, we can't do that. So what we have to do is figure out what what are we going to do. That caused us to ask a very important question, which is, what is a worship service, essentially? What are the elements that make a worship service happen? If we can't meet in a large group in the same room together, how can we make those essential things happen without the meeting in large groups in the same room piece? We had to dial everything back and figure out. Now, to be clear, what a lot of churches have done in the middle of a pandemic is like a lot of dating couples. They're like, I don't care what the right thing to do is. We're just going to be shouty and we're all going to get in the same room and do it together anyway. We don't care what the right thing to do is. And that's what a lot of folks that are dating are doing as well. But for folks who are saying, I want to do this the right way and I want to care about folks, I've got to figure out what are the essential elements and then I've got to figure out how can I do that on an online service, exactly like Jeb was talking about with the Facebook or the FaceTime dating. So that's what I want to encourage you to start with is to ask these kind of deeper questions of what is a date? What makes a date awesome? What brings connection between us, our particular little duo? What causes us to feel close to each other? What is the, what is the thing that brings friendship and romance and connection to us as an individual couple? 
And then within the confines of the pandemic and what the Lord is asking us to do, exactly as Glenn said, how creative can we be? If we can get um, a sense of what those essential elements of what a date is, what connection means to us, what romance means for us, all of those things, then I bet we can come up with some really cool creative stuff that ticks all of those boxes. And that's the thing. But we're not going to be able to do that if, in our mind, the only thing that equals dating is doing things you can't do during a pandemic. We got to strip all that down and say, what is a date? What is connection? What is romance? And then how can we achieve those things creatively? A couple of other little practical things that I would suggest, and this goes back to something Glenn said at the very beginning, which is if you know somebody who has been an army spouse of a deployed soldier, I would call them up and I would say, what was that experience like for you? What worked for you and what didn't work for you? Um, I would... I would be really interested in talking to somebody who has experienced um, the deployment of somebody that they really loved and how did they face that and how did they handle that and, and, and what lessons can you learn from that? The other thing that I would say, and this is, <laughs> this is just like a parting shot. It, it, this sounds really, really silly, but it's just kind of to add on to some of the practical things Jed was saying. One of the things that I've discovered in the middle of the pandemic, this is so weird, but like at the very beginning, we got – Christy and I bought a, a, a used PlayStation from, from a friend for our 12-year-old son because he doesn't have a smartphone. He doesn't have any way to be connected with his friends, and he was on quarantine and couldn't travel or anything like that. And I quickly discovered that a really cool way to hang out with my 12-year-old son is to get myself a Fortnite account and start playing video games with this dude, and we have a lot of fun, whatever. Well, it turns out that one of my best friends in my entire life lives – 1500 miles away from me. And he also got a Fortnite account and we go on missions together. He lives in Denver. I live in Tennessee and we'll text and say, do you want to jump on Fortnite? And all of a sudden we're talking like a phone call, but we're also on a little mission together in a virtual world, you know, shooting down the bad guys and, and getting victories and all that kind of stuff. It sounds silly, but like some of these connected online game platforms might be just the ticket. It might be a really, really fun way to hang out. All that to say, there are creative and cool ways for you to hang out, to make a goal, to have some connection, to have some, just to have some fun. And, um, and, and as soon as we can figure out what the heartbeat of a date is, then the possibilities of creativity are wide open. That is such a smart thing to say. I really, really love that. Uh, some, a couple of practical things I would add on in that vein, and it really is gets to what Lee is saying there. You kind of have to get out of the headspace of looking at what is a date and then what can we do and almost flip that to say, what can we do and how can we make that a date? And uh, one of the things that is open pretty much everywhere uh, is grocery stores and stuff like that. You can walk around, get the family shopping list, go with your, go with your boyfriend, chat, look at stuff. You know, you say get eating out is expensive, go get stuff to make, uh, find a recipe make something. A lot of this is going to come down to there's a lot of good ideas when you look at what can we do now? How can we add a date element to that? And that's the kind of creativity these guys are talking about. And they gave you a lot, a lot of good suggestions down that road. We are going to move on to our final question for the episode. It comes in anonymously and it says Christmas theological question here in the grand scheme of things. Why did God choose that exact moment in time to send his son, Jesus? Thousands of years, obviously a lot from the creation to the coming of Jesus the whole Old Testament, why then 
Does it say anywhere in the Bible, or is it one of those things we just don't or can't know? Thank you so much. And a very, very cool question. I like kind of the the blue sky thinking here. Obviously, we're not gonna we're not gonna feel that we have to be tied to things we can 100 percent theological back up because we're being asked kind of to to color outside the lines a little bit, which I think is very cool. And uh, Jed, where would we start off? I have no idea. I have absolutely no idea why God chose to act when he did. That's it. I don't know. But I can tell you this, which is super important. By any metric, it definitely worked. Mm. Christianity is the most practiced religion in the world. So by any definition, an itinerant, by his own admission, homeless preacher who grew up in a, I think it would be fair to say, a backwater town in um, uh, what had been taken over by an invading uh, uh, empire, is now revered and worshipped by more people on earth than anyone or anything else. Mm. It, this is not an original idea to me, but it, it had such an impact that they literally changed the calendar to reflect approximately when he was born. I don't know why God did it the way he did it. I don't know why God did it when he did it. But I do know that, again, by any metric, it definitely, definitely worked. Mm. And it's worth acknowledging that because that actually relates to your life. One of the things that I have the hardest time trusting God with is his timing. What I can tell you is that when I want something new brought into my life— God is either making me wait to a degree that feels absurd. Like, how could anyone possibly ask me to wait that long? Or he is moving things so quickly that it feels like I'm going to get whiplash from the process and I might just cease to be from the drama of all of it. I don't know that God has ever done anything in my life where I looked at the timing and felt, yeah, that seems right. That seems good. I'm I'm right. I'm I'm pleased with the timing and the pacing of all of this. It's very comfortable, very sensible. I, I actually can't think of a single example. But as I look back on stuff in my life, he was right. There were mm. things that I wanted way, way sooner that I was not ready for and would have made a mess of if I had had them when I wanted them. And then there are other things that I didn't think I was ready for, and I thought that they were too fast and whatnot. But I look back now and I realize, bro, if if that if we had gone at your slower pace, it never actually would have happened. It never actually would have occurred. So I find this uh, very, to me, very frustrating dynamic at work. God keeps being right about the timing, and it keeps not making any sense to me at all. I hope one day I will get to a point where on an emotional level, I'm totally comfortable with God's timing in my life. Mm. I, I would love to get to that point. I am not at that point, and I'm not optimistic about getting to that point. But the thing that I keep seeing in my own life is he keeps being right. And again, mm. that's the thing about the why of when Jesus came into the world is he was super right. I couldn't begin to tell you why it needed to be that way in that context, but he was super right about it. So when you look at your own life, everybody has struggles with timing, stuff that they think is going too fast, stuff they think is going too slow. I think one of the takeaways 
from Christmas and Jesus coming to earth is God really does know what he's doing when it comes to the timing of things in our lives and in our world. Exactly right. And also, I would say, suck on that, Zoroaster. No one ever changed the calendar for anything you did. And I think that's worth pointing out. A lot of awesome stuff there. And Lee, what would you add to that? I hope that one day Matt releases an album called Suck on That Zoroaster. <laughs> yeah. That was fantastic. Um, there's a 50-50 chance that's already a Mountain Goats album. But well, there's that. <laughs> well, I, I think Jed's answer is the right answer. And... Um, and, and I think we should all kind of rewind and go listen to that again. I, I would say just from a from a historical point of view, I think there are uh, – with, within the confines of Jed's answer, I would say looking back on things, I can look back and say, man, there are some really cool reasons why it worked. There are some really cool reasons why that was, a re- was really great timing. Had I lived – during David's time or during Daniel's time or during any of these other you know folks' time, I would have felt exactly emotionally like Jed's describing and like I feel most of the time in my own life. But you know, at the time that Jesus came, it was a really interesting moment historically because at that point, Judaism had spread over much of the known world, much of the known kind of Eastern, Near Eastern, and even parts of what we consider the Western world at that point, which gave kind of anybody that would hear the story of Jesus some context of the just the one God and how he dealt with people, just kind of some, some groundwork for what the message of the gospel would be. But not only that, also at that point, the Roman Empire had spread, like, I mean, everywhere. And when the Roman Empire spread into a place, what they would do is they would spread their commerce, they would spread their a common language, they would, they would build roads and have all of this kind of infrastructure that allowed people, masses of people. And it, this before the Roman Empire, this had never been true uh, you know, on a scale that it was after the Roman Empire was a, was a fact of the world, but it allowed open, safe travel for masses of people for the first time in world history at a scale at a level that that couldn't was incomparable in in a historical context in other words people could safely travel all over the world in a way that they never could before that with a with a common you know commerce language and and safety and when you look at that it's a it's a really cool thing to realize that at the time that Jesus came and then died and then rose from the dead and ascended into heaven and sent people out with a message. And it was a message that everybody needs to hear. Good news. Something amazing has happened. That's the, the, the gospel, the message of Jesus is essentially just a breaking news story that everybody needs to hear. And you can hear it and you can just accept this free gift, change your entire life, extra, extra, read all about it kind of thing. It happens at a time where the most of the world is blanketed with this context of the one God and how he deals with the world. And now we have safe, we have a a degree of safe travel. We have a common language. We have all this trade and commerce and people are going all over the world and we can communicate with each other. And everybody that wants to gets a chance to hear this message. That was, that started to happen at a time because of really the Roman empire it never could have been before that. It was kind of the first moment that you could spread a message like that, like wildfire. 
And um, and so I don't know if that's the true answer, because as Jed said, we don't know why God chose that moment, just like we don't know why the Lord hasn't returned yet. I mean, to my mind, it sure would have made sense for Jesus to come back before the train wreck of 2020, but I don't get to make that call. I, we don't know, but as we look back on it, it this just kind of kind of uh, underlines what Jeb was saying when he says, as I look back on my life, I see that he was right. When we look back from a historical perspective, when you think about language, commerce, infrastructure, the world, the way the world changed with the Roman Empire, we look back and say, you know, I think you were right. I think that was the first time in history that a message that could be delivered from one person's mouth to another person's ears could spread like wildfire in that way. Very, very cool stuff to add there. And Glenn, where would we close this out? Well, I don't know either. So uh, I don't. I, I don't. I can't tell you anything about that. Oh, for four, maybe ask the liturgists. I guess. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, uh, I'm an old dude, but I, I I'm not that old that it, where I was around and got invited to a meeting. So I can't tell you. Uh, the Bible says. Uh, I think it's got Galatians four talks about the. You know, when when the time was full, Jesus came into the world. I, I don't know what full means. Uh, probably full of BS in the world and needed <laughs> help, uh, something like that. Um, but to me, the the timing, I, I my guess is that the timing probably would involve several million variables that I wouldn't be able to uh, fully parse out. But to me, what's interesting is the circumstances of it more than the timing of it. Because to me, the circumstances are shocking, really shocking. I mean, just if you say, okay, we're going to send a Savior into the world, what should that look like? How should that work? The Probably the last idea you would come up with is baby. That have him be born as a baby. You, if I was putting a savior into the world, I'd say, okay, we just have him come walking down off of some mountain, and he's he's got himself together, and he's got a nice looking robe on, and he's got like a beard, and he's sort of an older looking dude, so he seems real wise, and he looks like maybe he's got you know some experience, and he's got some money, and he looks like he's got his act together, and uh, you don't have any of that. You have a baby. He grew up in Africa. He grew up in Egypt. Um, he uh, never had any kind of, um, you know, sort of a high status of any kind. As as was pointed out, he was homeless at one point. You know, his followers were, I mean, lepers. Okay, we 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 left lepers out earlier when we were talking about who followed Jesus. You, you can't leave the lepers out. People with diseases and things, and 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 uh, caught up in prostitution and and alcohol and all those things. These were the people that were following Jesus. Uh, to me, the circumstances of this are really shocking, and I, it's worth meditating on. You know, just saying, why was Jesus born as a baby? Uh, what does that say? Uh, what sort of message was the Lord trying to send? Because I think there is meaning in that. Uh, I think, you know, as much as I can't tell you about the timing exactly, I can't say there were a lot of uh, religious realities that, you know, kind of relate to what we're talking about in the first question, that 
you had people who were, uh, you know, first of all, the 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 mechanism of how you came into a relationship with God was through a person who was a scholar. You know that that scholars were running that stuff, and they were focused on the law, and they were focused on it in a legalistic way. They were not. I think that a lot of people were really inspired by Jesus because he was he was breathing life into this, as opposed to just beating people over the head and said saying this is what you have to do. Uh, there was there was more uh, you know reality and and more, it was more human, more visceral when he spoke uh, about the Old Testament, and he's bringing up things that they had heard but they'd never really thought about before, and there were truths there that that are coming out. But he's saying that into a, a, a culture that had just fully immersed itself in obeying rules rather than trying to have that living, authentic relationship uh, with God. Uh, and as it was pointed out, there were, you know, there was a, a an entire uh, uh, conquering country that had taken over, an entire other society that had taken over all of that, and, you know, we i think we can't ignore the fact that that helped spread christianity uh tremendous you know in in a way that was very quick you take all these people capture them as slaves and send them to the four corners of this empire it spreads pretty darn quick so you know i think looking at we we can look at those realities that we are aware of and say there has to be some meaning and importance to that, that it, it must mean something that the way people encountered Scripture and the way people um, were sort of indoctrinated into things rather than making their own choices about having a living, breathing relationship with God, those things do, I think, have to mean something, and it's worth meditating on. I absolutely agree. I think this is a very, very cool question. I'm glad you read it in because it, I think it, it's kind of a microcosm of a lot of things about uh, the world, about spirituality, and about God, which is you're absolutely right that we are never going to know why. You can't know why God does anything because his mind is uh, infinite and ours are very much not. But that doesn't mean that there isn't a reasoning to it. That doesn't mean there aren't things to be gleaned from it. And I think the fact that we're never going to know the full, full story is not a reason to not think about these things and, and pick at them and see what we can glean from. I think it's a very, very cool thought process and a very cool question. I'm glad you wrote it in. If you have a question for us, you can write set podcast at gmail.com or the bridge, Chicago.tumblr.com. If you want to keep that totally anonymous, you can of course check us out every Tuesday at seven 30 central time, facebook.com slash the bridge, Chicago, for the bridge live. And if you can't catch it live, every single episode is archived at the videos tab on our Facebook page. It is the Christmas season. So we're going to take out with the pool house, a guru's version of Oh, Holy night. Ooh, yeah. Thanks for listening. Just remember, we love you. God loves you. There's nothing you can do about it. Access to the ending of the say that podcast is restricted. Only awesome super fans are eligible to hear this ending. We aren't a big deal. You're a big deal. <laughs> oh, Holy night.
Just rising up. <laughs>